Well, you've made it. Congratulations. It is the end of our series, the conclusion of our series called This Is Us, where we've been looking at the core values of what defines us because what defines us actually develops us in the same way. And so uh, if you're coming for the first time and this is kind of the, the last series, you're going, oh no, I forgot everything else or I don't know everything else that's been said so far. Or quite frankly, if you know, you're more like me, you think I can't even remember yesterday and I go to this church all the time. I can't remember what was said the last few weeks. Good news, we've got a little bit of a recap for you to talk about and show you what it is that we've talked about over the last number of weeks, since September the 12th, actually. The very first thing that we've learned, sort of a precursor, is that at the core of us is Jesus. We've learned that the lost are a core value to us. Lost people matter to God. He wants them found. We've learned that prayer Prayer is a value to us, that prayer is actually the primary work of the people of God. We've learned about stewardship. We talked about stewardship just a little bit earlier in the service, but everything we have, stewardship is everything we have belongs to God, and we are only stewards, middle managers. We value the word, God's word. Because we know that knowing and obeying God's word is fundamental to all true success. We value the commission. As a matter of fact, if you grew up in church, you might know this as the, the great commission. The command that God gives everyone to go and make disciples. And completing the great commission will require the mobilization of every full devoted, fully devoted disciple. And one of our core values is the spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit's empowerment, we can accomplish nothing. Now, if you'd like to know more about what we've specifically said for each one of these core values, you'll find the entire message series on our website or wherever you enjoy podcasts. You can just search for Trinity Alliance Church and choose the one that looks like our church because there's a lot of churches around the country and around the world that are called Trinity Alliance Church. And so if you were to picture what this kind of looks like, it kind of looks like this, that at the core of us is Jesus at the center is Jesus, and then who we are as a church and who we are as individual Christians focuses on these areas. We value the lost, we value prayer, we value stewardship, we value the word, we value God's word, we value the commission, and we value the spirit. But that's a lot, isn't it? When you look at that, you go, okay, so I have all of these values and we're supposed to put them all together and practice them in some way. How do, we, how do we put it all together? Where do we start? It almost feels like what we've done in this series is every week we've said, we're going to teach you how to juggle. Actually, no, we're not going to teach you how to juggle. We're just going to give you the things that you have to juggle and you have to start to take them. And you can already hear the clown music starting in your head. And you have to juggle all of these things. And here are seven things that we are supposed to do and to practice and value. So where do we start? What's the best way to get going? Where do we restart? What do we do? Well, that's why we're wrapping up the series today. Because in my mind, I think we've saved the best 
for last. And if you're just investigating who Jesus is, and you're wondering, how do I implement what God wants me to do in my life? We're going to talk about how you can get started. Or, if it's your first time in a long time, and you're wondering, how do I restart? And we're going to end with how you begin. A few years ago, uh, my family and I, uh, most of you know that uh, we're originally from Canada, and uh, for Thanksgiving, our family decided to go to Washington, D.C. for a little bit of a vacation. All of our families in Canada, and they celebrate Thanksgiving earlier in October. They don't celebrate it at the end of November. And so for us to go visit them, they'd be at work. It would be kind of a disaster. They're not preparing any big meals. We want to have a big meal. And so we went down to Washington, D.C. And it's one of the, my favorite vacation memories that we've ever had. Uh, to see the Washington Monument up close, which we talked about last week, which to see the Lincoln Memorial, to see the Capitol building, it was stunning in all of its grandeur. It was amazing, and it gave you this sense of importance. And Krista said, uh, hey, you know, why don't we go visit the National Portrait Gallery? Um, some of you love art, right? Raise your hand if you love art. Give us a thumbs up in chat if you love art. Uh, I, I like art, and I like the fact that other people can do art, and I like the fact that, you know, I can look at it and go, yeah, that's, that's really neat, good for you, and move on. But going to a gallery full of art, yeah, this was not my favorite part of the visit. But Krista said I'd like to go, so I went, and Josh went, and we were excited to be there. Um, the portrait gallery is set up with a lot of uh, things that they change over the years and seasons. They have different things that they're promoting. Uh, and, but there are other things that are there all of the time. And this is the one thing that caught my attention. It's kind of like that. You know, trying new things is actually pretty helpful. You go and you try it and you go, well, I'm not sure I liked everything, but this one thing was really, really fun. And what we saw was the presidential portraits room. Now, the presidential portraits, you can kind of see them here and you can see them in the next photo as well. Talk about stately. And it was amazing to go through and see portraits, the official portraits that the presidents wanted to be remembered by throughout this whole wing of the gallery. Some portraits, well, they were designed to evoke a feeling of stature and significance. While others, they had a sense of familiarity and friendliness that they wanted to show. And you can kind of see that here through some of the presidents that we've had. But that's not the most impressive thing to me. Not the oil on canvas, not the representations, not some of the older uh, images of presidents long gone because we've had many presidents over the years. But um, what amazed me the most and what actually intrigued me the most and made this a very memorable moment for us on vacation was that they all had an honest exhibition label. And sometimes, actually almost all of the time, with very, very, very few exceptions, they were brutally honest. For example, 
Franklin Pierce. How many of you know and study Franklin Pierce in class? Nobody, right. Because this is what they say about Franklin Pierce. He was the 14th president from 1853 to 1857. And his biographer wrote this. What luck Frank has, remarked Nathaniel Hawthorne when he began writing a campaign biography of his lifelong friend, Franklin Pierce. Pierce coasted effortlessly through elections to New Hampshire state offices and to Congress and had risen from the rank of private to brigadier general in the Mexican-American War without firing a shot. But once in the White House, his luck ran out. When fighting erupted in Kansas between pro- and anti-slavery factions, Pierce, a northerner with southern sympathies, was unwilling to antagonize his southern friends or use the authority of his office to intervene. And as a result, his administration, which had begun so hopefully with the Compromise of 1850, ended in in the midst of a series of violent political confrontations referred to as bleeding Kansas that foreshadowed the Civil War. That's on Franklin Pierce's exhibition label. William Howard Taft. How many of you studied William Howard Taft in school? Maybe if you, some of you remember the name. Some of you may think, I know them from the furniture store. That's not the same thing. He's the 27th president, 1909 to 1913, and Taft felt determined to follow in the footsteps of his predecessor, Theodore Roosevelt, particularly um, with regard to implementing domestic reform. But Taft, an indecisive leader, quote, was largely unsuccessful in meeting this goal. When he, ended, when he presented his tariff reform package, Congress put forth more than 800 amendments that made it almost impossible to pass, and he did nothing to object to their amendments. Or how about Ulysses S. Grant? How many of you have heard of Ulysses S. Grant? A few, few people know that name. That's a, that's a famous Civil War hero. 18th president from 1869 to 1877. Ulysses S. Grant was a West Point graduate who had no ambition to be in the military. He wanted to be a teacher. Nevertheless, he served with distinction in the Mexican-American War. And after resigning the army in peacetime, he re-enlisted for the Civil War. After a number of victories, Grant was brought east by Lincoln to command the Union armies. And his unrelenting campaign against Robert E. Lee in 1864 1864 and 1865 finally won the war for the North. And because of this, Grant was elected president. But this is what the exhibition label says. But the powers of command he displayed in the army seemed to abandon him when he reached the White House. He was unable to manage the politics of Reconstruction, and his hands-off attitude spawned an outbreak of federal corruption. It was profoundly impactful to see these grand photos with their successes, their president. And then all of their failures right on display for anyone to go and visit and see. It was profoundly impactful to see these powerful leaders displayed like this in front of us. 
Imagine you were in this hall. What would your exhibition label say about you? What would it say? Your portrait was there. What would it say about you? Maybe if you're a a Christ follower, maybe if you're a Christian, and there's a hall of fame of, of Christian powerhouses over the centuries of people who have made a difference from God, made a difference for God, do you think that um, your picture would be there? What would it take for your picture to be there? Would you want your picture to be there? Well, I have good news. Not only if you are a Christian, Can your picture be in the Christian Hall of Fame? But it's easier than you think to have your picture there. There's not a lot that you have to do, but there is one common requirement that everyone must have. I mean, imagine as God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are walking, floating, down the hall of fame for Christianity, and they see your portrait, and they see your portrait, and they see your portrait, and they see your portrait. They would see one common reason why you are there. And that reason, that requirement is this. Hebrews 11.6 says, That without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Can we we read that together? Just one verse, short verse together. Can we read that out loud together? If you're participating online, read that out loud. Uh, If you're alone, read that out loud. If you're with your family, read it together. Here we go. One, two, three. And with that to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What is the requirement for the Christian Hall of Fame? Faith. The, The requirement for the Christian Hall of Fame is simply faith. Why? Why isn't it other things? Why isn't it great deeds for God? This is why. Because faith is the foundation for great deeds for God. In other words, faith in God only becomes obvious when it acts. Faith in God is not an intellectual understanding. It is an Active movement, a decision, a progress of something that you're choosing to amplify and promote and practice and make a habit in your life. In other words, our last core value is this. Achieving God's purposes involves taking faith-filled risks. This always involves change. Achieving God's purposes involves taking faith-filled 
risks. This always involves change. If I were to tell you, how, how do I get focused on prayer? How do I get started in the word? How do I get more uh, committed to the Great Commission? How do I become a better steward? Every time my answer is, start with making decisions that have some risk to it, that make some changes, but are based on faith in two things. Faith is taking God at face value. And what I mean by that is this. He is God and we are not. He is God and we are not. And the verse kind of describes two things. That God exists. Faith believes that God exists. And it was said a long time ago, uh, an incredible uh, theologian once said that what comes, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I would follow that up with this statement, is do you, what you think about God match what God thinks about God? We don't get to make up who God is. We don't get to decide who God is. We need to be shown. We need to be told who God is through his word. So what we think about God needs to match up. And if we really lean into who God is from the descriptions that he has given us through his word, what we discover is that we have God as our heavenly father. And God is also our righteous judge. And that understanding of who God is, that he is God, that we are not, develops that fear of God that the Old Testament is talking about, where it develops wisdom in our lives. And do you know what wisdom does? It teaches us what to do and what not to do. It shows us that this is what we ought to do, and this is what we not ought to do. In other words, faith is more than just a, yes, of course, I believe God exists. And then we go about our day like that doesn't matter. Faith acts on that understanding. It is not just agreeing. It is acting. It trusts and makes decisions that we're in God's hands, that God is in control, and that the love of God shows up in the way that everything he allows into our lives is for our benefit and good. And the benefit of knowing that, the benefit of doing that, is that when we trust God in this way, we are, I think we're innately saying that, I know it's difficult right now, but what you've got for me is better. What's coming is better. The reward will be better than we can imagine. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's the risk. Achieving God's purposes always involves taking faith-filled risks, and that always involves change. What kind of change do you think that value is talking about? Change around us? Other people have to change in order for that to happen? Maybe. But I think more specifically, it's a change in us. And the risk comes because we don't like change. We like the things that we have. We like the things that we do. They provide us with stability. And it's in painful moments that we want to change and get into a better environment. And 
guess what? The risk is, the challenge is, when it seems like obeying God gets us into more hot water rather than out of hot water. It leads us from the frying pan into the fire rather than off the stove altogether. And the writer of Hebrews actually deals with that. He writes this. He's talking about, in chapter 11, these heroes of faith, this hall of fame that we talked about, the place where you and I can be. And he says, what more shall I say? I do not have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. That's exciting. But there were others who were tortured refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect? It's a long set of verses, so let me unpack this a little bit. The challenging risk of allowing God to be God in your life is that sometimes the reward is delayed. And sometimes we wonder if the risk is worth the reward. And what he's saying here is that you have no idea how long the reward will take to come. But the reward for those who live by faith is that there will be those later in life, later in history, maybe generations later, who will stand on the shoulders of your faithful obedience. They will become Christ followers because of your absolute, unshakable actions that said God is God. And God will reward those who are faithful, so I will be faithful. And I will pursue Him in faith even if I don't receive the reward in this life. The hardest thing for me as a pastor is when I see people make incredible acts of sacrifice and obedience and faith and it costs them. And some of you have experienced that. Risk for God maybe has cost you family members. 
Maybe it's cost you finances. Maybe it's cost you safety or health. But what's riskier? Looking at God in the eye and saying, I trust you, or looking God in the eye and saying, I don't trust you. What's ultimately harder? What's ultimately going to have the greater impact for good or not for good? Tomorrow, suppose you show up at work and your boss says, listen, Jerry, you've got a new project. I need you to handle this project. You need to take it on. It's yours. Um, And you tell him, no, I'm pretty busy. I'm not going to do that. I've actually got other things I want to do. I was thinking of taking, you know, an early afternoon off just because, you know, know, I've worked hard. Um, So I'm just going to take an afternoon off and, you know, you can get someone else to do it. What do you think Jerry's boss would uh, tell him? He might repeat that just to make sure that he heard it clearly. So are, are you saying this to me? I don't think it would be very long before Jerry was looking for work. Right? Fine. I will some, find someone else who will do the job and I will find someone else to do your job as well. I think that's exactly what would happen. However, if the boss comes in and says to Jerry, hey, listen, we've got this project. I want you to head it up. I want you to take it on. And Jerry said, absolutely. What do we need? What's the goal? What's the objective? How many resources do I have? What's the time frame? Already starting to make plans, wanting to get it done, wanting to do a good job. Which one do you think your boss would like better? The person who said, I'm in. The person who said, I'm ready to go, give me the task, I'm on it. When you do what your boss requires, your job goes better, right? This is the part we say amen. Amen. Absolutely, you know that. And when we don't trust what the instructions are, life gets worse. I remember one time we sent uh, uh, our son Josh to summer camp, Christian summer camp. He hated it. Didn't want anything to do with it, but being good parents, we made him stay the week. (laughs) And so he stayed there that whole week, and he couldn't wait to get home. And we punched in the directions to the Christian camp on the GPS on the day it was time to pick him up. And we started to drive. And as we got closer to the Christian camp, all of a sudden, the GPS started to say, turn down this little side street. Turn down this, what looked like an alleyway, or go down these back roads where it's almost, it's a lane and a half. It's not really two lanes for traffic. It's you kind of have to share and get over on the side of the road. And I thought, that's not the way to the camp. This isn't the route we took last week. I want to go a different direction. I want to go my way. And as we drove my way, we almost ended up in a parade. There was a town parade. It was around the 4th of July or something else that was significant to the town. And they had closed off all the regular main streets for this parade. The GPS was trying to warn us that this is what's coming. We already know traffic's an issue here. These roads are blocked. So you can go a different direction. We'll get you around it. And I said, I know better. How many times have we as Christians and people have said to God, we know better than you? Following God. 
accomplishing God's purposes for your life always involves faith-filled risks, and that always involves change. My hope is this morning to not scare you into taking risks, but to inspire you. I want you to know that the risk doesn't have to be reckless. We don't have to run up onto the roof and jump off the steeple or off the cross and try to fly. It's not what God is asking us to do because when we take reckless risk, we make life about our fame, our glory, rather than God's fame and God's glory. We want to bring Him the attention, not to bring us the attention. Even this morning, my hope is that what you're not hearing is my words, but that you're hearing from God Himself through me. It's not about me. But also, on the other hand, it's not about life is not about safety, right? Life is not about safety, even though we give lip service to the fact that we say life is about safety. At home, we teach our kids to look both ways before crossing the street, right? That's the safe thing to do. At home, we salt the porch, we salt the steps going up into our home, we salt the driveway so that when the, when the storms come, when winter's here, that it's safe to walk on and it's safe to drive on. At work... In your lunchroom or some other appropriate place, there's a poster that declares your safety rights. If you're in construction, you wear the appropriate protection, steel-toed boots, maybe a hard hat. But if safety really came first, I don't think we go far enough. If safety really came first, you wouldn't have driven a car here, would you? If safety really came first, everyone would be participating online. Nobody would be live in the building because it's dangerous to get behind the wheel of a car. We wouldn't get on a bicycle to come to church, let alone drive a car to church. Have you seen the other ways that people drive? I mean, it's not us. It's other people who drive like this, right? Say amen. amen. That's right. If we really took safety first... There would be so much salt on the driveways of our homes that people would think we're a McDonald's drive through If safety was really first, we wouldn't just wear protective boots. We'd have protective bubbles. We'd be so safe, we'd put the Salino Law Firm out of business. We'd never hear that cute jingle on TV ever again. Maybe that's not a bad thing, but we'd never hear that jingle again. We'd put law firms out of business. But if we really put safety first, we'd never take any risks at all. You never would have met that girl who became your wife. You never would have said yes to that man who became your husband. You never would have taken a risk on that job that you weren't sure of where to go. You never would have chosen that college or that school. You would have stayed at home and been safe and just protected, and you would not have lived. You know this is true in the physical world, that there is no reward unless you take a risk. There is no gain without a little bit of pain. This is also true in the spiritual world. Friends, if you're interested in enjoying the life that God wants to give you, you cannot put safety first. 
You must put faith-filled risks first. Faith that believes that God exists, that God is God, that you are not, and that you can trust him. If you can trust him with salvation, you can trust him with your sanctification, your development, your life, not just now, but for forever. Faith always involves sacrifice. It is risky business, but it's only faith that pleases God. So what is the risk that God is asking you to take? What is the risk that God is asking you to take? For some of you, maybe participating online, it was, hey, we saw this post on Facebook. I'm going to click and watch this stream. And, uh, or you joined us off of our website stream and you thought, I'm going to watch this for a little bit. You kind of liked it. That's a faith-filled risk. Some of you came for the first time. Some of you visited for the first time. And some of you can think back to when you visited, when you came for the first time and thought, this is a risk. What are they going to be like? What are they going to do? Are they going to be like people, okay, everyone stand and um, 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 Right? I remember I've gone to other churches, other traditions. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know whether to stand, kneel, sit, pat my head, rub my tummy, stand on one foot. Like, what do I do? How do I fit in? Where, where is everything? Who am I going to know? Am I going to be welcomed? That's a faith-filled risk. Some of you gave for the first time in a long time. That's a faith-filled risk. I'm convinced that God is asking everyone to take a faith-filled risk. And do you know what gets you in the Christian Hall of Fame? Is not whether you're good at it. Every other Hall of Fame exists, and the guys who get in are great at basketball. They have skills that are better than everyone else. And God isn't interested in that. There were people on the list of his Hall of Fame who their faith-filled risk was staring in the face of death and they said, I will not deny my Jesus. And they're there. That's the only thing they've accomplished. That's the only thing that they've done. But they're there because they just simply said, I will not worship anyone but Jesus. Faith takes risks for God. Because we know those who take them, that the risk is worth the reward. So how do you take risks for God? Where can you start with this kind of faith? Where can you do that? I think, I just want to give one application. Here's how to take faith-filled risks. This is a short one. (laughs) But it's simply run towards Jesus. So let me read these verses to you from Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all those people, some who accomplished great things for God, some who just simply surrendered their lives for God, because we're surrounded by those people, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. 
Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Yes, there's risk. Yes, it will involve sacrifice. And it is always, always, always worth it. The risk is worth the reward. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember what Jesus has been given because of his obedience. That awaits you. If you live a life of risk-filled faith for him. That's what it means to be in the Christian, in the Jesus follower hall of fame. So as we wrap up, just let me ask you these questions. What are you risking for God in faith? What change is God asking you to make in faith today? What would it take for you to do that? God says, you already know that I exist. You believe that I'm God and you are not. Now, I want you to know that if you take a step of faith for me, I will reward that. God honors those who honor him. People who live in faith are not as concerned about the risk. They know that God is God and that with God, the risk is worth the reward. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. For the inspiration of these heroes. Some who were rewarded in this life and some who have been rewarded in eternity. But in every case, those heroes simply took faith-filled risks to do what you called them to do, to run the race that you put before them. Lord, would you make it abundantly clear? The race that you have put before us. And would you help us to run it? Not because we have the strength, not because we have the wherewithal, not because we have the endurance, but because we believe that you are God, you commanded us to, and that we can trust you when we take steps to do what you have commanded us to do. Lord, we so often get caught up in the risk, we get caught up in the price, we get caught up in the sacrifice. Would you help us instead to look to your reward? Would you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus who died on the cross and his reward was that he was given the name that is above every name. Lord, we want to live a life like that that takes faith-filled risks for you. For those here, Father, that may be someone who is just considering the claims of Jesus and wanting to surrender their lives to you. What a great step of faith-filled risk to trust in you for their salvation. For some, Father, that may be giving up something that is hindering them from the race that you want them to run. 
It might be a a pastime, a a sinful behavior, a habit that's hard to break, or maybe it's a, a relationship that needs to change in order for us to run after Jesus. Lord, whatever that risk is that you're asking us to take, would you help us not to focus on the risk, but help us to focus on the reward, help us to focus on Jesus, because the risk is worth the reward. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.